The following is a special bonus episode of the Advocate Podcast, Stories from Kawartha Lakes, brought to you by Ward's Lawyers. Find them at wardlegal.ca. Sorry, I'm late. Come on in. I don't think you're late, Art. A little bit, but it's okay. I guess you're not on the clock anymore. That's good. Yeah. And who's this little fella? That's Diesel. Hey, Diesel, how are you, buddy? Nice. Diesel, a bit. Jason Ward is one of those bigger-than-life characters. A bit physically imposing. He's lithe and very fit. Still has a full head of hair, even now in his early 50s his early 50s. This is relevant because unlike many middle-aged men who dodge talking about their age, Jason is totally cool with talking about it. He'll tell you if you ask and sometimes even if you don't. It's a confidence, not a cockiness, but a comfort that is refreshing. And it's also deceptive as you'll hear. Jason grew up in Lindsay. He returned after starting his law career in Toronto, bowing out of Bay Street for Kent Street in Lindsay. That's where Jason and his wife, Carissa, also a lawyer, built one of the biggest law practices in this part of the province. There's no nuance in Jason's connection, his commitment to this community. Has anyone here not driven past his home on Halloween to take in his Hollywood-inspired well, 60s, campy, Hollywood-inspired, ghoulish decorations. It served as the anchor for a citywide Haunt Your Home contest that raised thousands of dollars for local youth mental health causes. And don't we all have some even tangential association to one of the many local charities he supports? But beneath all of that perceived outward self-assured poise, Jason was hurting and hiding until he couldn't. We got a hint of this when he abruptly bowed out of the mayoral race last year, stating that he had to deal with his own mental health. He very recently opened up about this, as well as his addictions to the Canadian Bar Association's podcast, Modern Law. And when we asked him to share his story, especially as it relates to his place, his life in his community, Jason Ward, now retired from practicing law and now looking to that next chapter, agreed, inviting me into his home to hear his story. Okay, so here's my first question here. A typical greeting, and we all say it, we all have it said to us, is, how are you? You hear that all the time. You know, it's, uh, it's sometimes we genuinely listen, but let's face it, most of us may not be listening really for that answer. It's often just a placeholder. So given the past few years, especially the past few years, when people in the community whom you consort with on a daily basis, how did your answer to that compare to how you, you really were at that time? Uh, I, I think the phrase, how are you, for me has changed dramatically since I got sober. Now I'm finding that whereas historically it was more of just a gesture, you know, how are you doing? Now, when I ask people that, I'm genuinely interested. And I like to hear stories and I like to hear how people are doing. Where I haven't developed very much is if I'm asked the same question, I'm still reticent to uh, give too much information. Not because uh, I want to maintain privacy, just because I'm, I'm sensitive to overwhelming other people with what's going on in my life. And when people say, how are you? It's hard to really gauge what level of how are you are they saying? Is it, 
Is it a hello or is it, hey, Jason, how are you doing? What's been going on with you? I'm curious and interested. But depending on the people you are talking to, and I'm sure there's a strata like most of us do, you know, acquaintance, good friend, really close friend, best friend. Does that factor into it? Like when, when people would ask you that, would you think, uh, can I can I divulge what's going on to this person? Or I just wonder what that struggle might have been like to, to, to not really unload or, or, or be completely candid. Yeah, well, for for you know, many years of, of my addictions and what I was going through, I was very private about all of it. Uh, so rarely would I ever discuss it with anyone, uh, possibly with the exception of, of a few close family members. Uh, I certainly uh, didn't reveal my experiences to anyone professionally, any colleagues, uh, anyone at my firm or business. Uh, no one really had a sense of what was going on. And even now, uh, when people are hearing uh, a little bit about the story I have, they're saying, I'm shocked about the extent of what was going on with you throughout that period of time. Uh, and so I've, I've realized that uh, many people had no idea or didn't realize what was going on with me um, for, for those several years. What's your reaction to that, to them being oblivious to it? I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at what I do. Uh, I'm, you know, I, that was part of my plan was conceal it. Um, <clears throat> I didn't want anyone to know locally because not, not because I wasn't willing to disclose that I have mental health issues. I'm, I'm okay with that. And I think I would have been at the time, but the inquiry would never stop there. Uh, it would always be, well, what does that mean? How does that look? How does that play out in your life? And I was, I was always very careful never to talk about my arising addiction issues uh, flowing from my mental health issues. Why not? How come you were you were that you, you pulled back on that? Um, I always I always thought that you know it would give me or I'd suffer or the business would suffer some sort of comparative advantage in in the in the legal space in the market for law locally. Uh, that may be unfounded. I may have been um, exaggerating that concern, but my sense of it was that if people viewed this as a potential weakness in me. Uh, juxtaposed against the reputation I was I was carrying out there as a litigator, uh, I didn't want that compromised, and I didn't want the business to suffer in any way. Uh, I didn't want what I was going through to negatively impact any of the thirty or forty people that are down at that office who continue to run it and work it successfully. You've got a lot you're dealing with there. There's all those balls in the air. I mean, there's what you're dealing with, and then there's the responsibility of you know not just family, obviously, and and, and your employees and your wife, your partner, in every sense of the word. I can't help but think that that just exacerbated everything you were dealing with. So how did you manage to keep those balls in the air without them all kind of tumbling down? Well, it it eventually I didn't. They they did tumble, um, but. You know, with with my behavior, uh, I just became more extreme as as this progressed, and the more I had to conceal it. So, you know, the alcohol consumption increased dramatically over time. Uh, when the alcohol stopped uh, due to sobriety, I discovered uh, drugs, and that became a replacement, mind alteration escape for me. So, really, if I look back and and think about it, um, my use of my substance use disorder escalated along with the pressure I was having to maintain balance and have others perceive that I wasn't suffering at all or that I was behaving normally. Hmm. How important was that, that you, you sort of keep that, that veneer up of, you know, and, and I mean, I, we saw each other semi-frequently and 
you were this well put together guy physically, it seemed emotionally and everything. So how important was it for you to, to just, I, I don't want anybody to see the, the other Jason. Yeah, I, I'd say it was paramount in my life. It was, it was one of my priorities. And, you know, frankly, I think I was good at it. Uh, and I was good at it for many years until I hit that threshold of precipice where um, I just lost control. I couldn't maintain that level of uh, oversight, control, and execute my plan like I had up to that point. Do you remember that moment when you knew that, okay, I, the, the veneer, I can't, I can't keep this up anymore? I think it was probably when I, you know, very begrudgingly and in a saddened way decided that I had to leave my law firm. I think that was the moment where I said to myself, this is beyond what I can control and I can't stay here. Uh, I can't stay here for a number of reasons. One is it wasn't fair to the others who worked so hard down at that law firm, including the lawyers and the law lawyer staff. It wasn't fair to my family. And, you know, I, I wasn't prepared to have my quality of work or, or quality of my representation of people get compromised. I suspect many listeners were uh, somewhat aghast. I know I was when, when you did the interview with the Canadian Bar Association podcast. You were very forthright in that, uh, you know, your, your problem with alcohol and drugs, it, it really didn't sneak up until your mid-40s, that you had no real previous relationship with any of that prior to that. So how, here we are now, like six or seven years past that, what, you know, I guess you can ultimately call a formative time What's your reaction looking back on that, knowing that it all came, it sort of came together in my mid-40s, not in my 20s, not when I was, you know, in my teens? Um, I, I suspect or realize now that I probably had underlying mental health issues that I successfully suppressed for many years. Uh, they may, they probably got exacerbated with the level of pressure and exertion I was, I was using at work. And not only to be the best lawyer I could, but to build this brand of a law firm uh, and all the things that I did to do that. Uh, so I, I do think it's odd that, you know, as you said, for most of my life, alcohol was not a factor. I was, I was at best a social drinker. Uh, very rarely did I drink to excess. I certainly didn't think about alcohol very much, including on vacations. Uh, I had never touched drugs in my life save and accept for one or two occasions where somebody passed me a joint and I tried it to see what it was like. Uh, and then, and that continued on until I was 45. And something inside of me, a switch turned when I was 45, that all of a sudden the escape from my life became extremely alluring. Was it the number 45, you think specifically, or was it just coincidence? I don't know. I don't know. I, I can't make any connection between that specific number and, you know, anything that was going on in my life at that particular time. I, I don't know if there's a statistical connection for men or men in my profession with that number. I don't think there is uh, or I haven't heard of one. Uh, no, I think it was just uh, a, a confluence of events that came together in a perfect storm that caused me to just uh, discover and escape from what I was feeling, which I didn't even know the extent of at the time. What kind of events can, can you describe any of them? Well, for me, uh, you know, it, it was, it was almost like manna from heaven. Uh, I was, I was sitting by a pool in Puerto Vallarta at a nice resort with my family, with my kids playing cards. And I ordered a, uh, Roman Coke 
And I had never really drank rum and coke before. And just that environment of being in that, it's not like you're alone at a bar uh, at two o'clock in the morning. So. No, no, it was, and, and you know, it wasn't intentional. Uh, I just ordered it and, and that was the beginning of the end for me. That, that caused me to start drinking on vacation um, consistently. That escalated to being, you know, drunk for most of my vacations when I was away at a week at a time. Uh, I, I typically didn't start till the mid-afternoon, but come mid-afternoon, you know, wherever I was, Puerto Vallarta or wherever, uh, that would be it until 10 o'clock. And I, you know, I rarely remember the night before. Hmm. That crept into my life here at home in Lindsay. Uh, and drinking became eventually uh, part of my daily routine. When, at what point did you realize that this daily routine can no longer be my, my any routine? Uh, I went sober in uh, August of 2022, so just after the pandemic started. And at that point, um, I was drinking enough that in the evenings I would stay up by myself. I'd be alone, you know, in my kitchen or wherever, and I'd be listening to music, and and I'd just start to get emotionally overwhelmed, crying, um, lamenting about things, uh, very depressed. I think at the same time, I didn't realize it at the time, but I think I was very depressed. Um, and that's when I knew I had a problem because my kids, my kids were really starting to recognize that drunk dad versus non-drinking dad. And they associated, they, they recognized my change of behavior. They recognized my demeanor changes. They could tell when I'd been drinking at home, even if it hadn't been that much. That's when it really started to click with me buttressed by the fact that my wife turned up her um, dialogue with me on the issue when she also saw that happening. She tolerated it for a while, hoping I'd get better on my promises that I would. And I was very good at, at, at uh, gaslighting my wife that things would get better. Um, because and I, we want to believe it. Let's face it. We've all been in that situation where somebody tells us something that we really, we really want to believe. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I was probably fooling myself at the time that I could get better and that I would get better. And this was, this was a momentary, you know, time of my life, a temporary period. And uh, I had control of it and I'd get better. Let's talk about that, the idea of fooling yourself, because you, you've been very upfront that you're very good at fooling other people. Right. When, when you look back now at, at how you fooled yourself, what, what do you see? Well, the, the, really, the, the key way I fooled myself was when I went sober because the only way I could go sober was to trick myself into thinking this would just be a temporary exercise. I would abstain from alcohol consumption uh, in accordance with what all these people were telling me to do. I'd follow the programs. I'd listen to these sober coaches and uh, I would only do that to the point where I'm satisfied and they're satisfied that I can manage drinking. Then I would return to manage drinking. Mm -hmm. So alcohol didn't have to be non-existent for my life ad infinitum or forever. This would be a temporary period for me. Once I demonstrate I can, I can exercise control drinking, I'll be fine and I'll go back to it. And that's, that's how I fooled myself into going into sobriety. Otherwise, I'm not sure I could have. You mentioned in the podcast too, and this is certainly a, a much bigger issue and, and probably deserving of a much bigger conversation, but that after you gave up drinking, you had discovered legal recreational drugs and that you could, you know, you could fill that void with that. And I think even the layperson would, would think that 
okay, so that's an easy way to legitimize it because it's not, you're, you're not in the back alley somewhere in, in Lindsay or wherever, you know, in the, in the cloak of darkness buying quote unquote drugs, you're, you're going into a storefront. So looking back on that now, how, how do you, how do you see that whole experience of, of filling that void with something that was now completely legal and, and, and societally normal in many ways? Well, I'll say that who, whoever says that, that marijuana is not addictive is full of shit. Uh, I got addicted to marijuana. I got addicted to THC. Uh, my, my addiction to that drug escalated over time and became entirely uh, uncontrollable. Um, I couldn't exist or function and continue to stay in my job without mind-altering experience, without my escape hatch. I needed to be able to still dumb down. Uh, I what do you mean to, dumb down? Well, put, put away all the things I've historically that have fueled me and driven me professionally to be the best lawyer I can, to make sure if you contact me after hours, you're always going to hear from me within minutes. Um, you know, thinking about cases all the time. I was never a lawyer and I admire those who could do this. I was never a lawyer who could leave work at work. Uh, when I was at home, I was thinking about what we need to do in his case today uh, or the night before. And I'd go back into the office at 11 o'clock and research and made sure everything was perfect. Uh, so I maximized my chance of success because I was compelled to win. Not only because I wanted people to be successful who I helped, I did want that, but I also had something innate in me that had to win. And that's part of what I've been trying to identify and struggle with in sobriety as well, is why my wiring, why am I wired that way? What is it about me that makes me need to win all the time everything I do? I am going to approach that in just a moment, but I want to come back to, you know, the, uh, uh, the perception that other people may have and how you kept that veneer up. And, and again, in that podcast, it was very revealing, Jason, when you talked about sitting in your truck for an hour behind the offices in the parking lot there, just psyching yourself up to go into work. I just wonder what your reaction was when people you know walked by and they recognized you. I was one of those people. I would walk by and just give you the tip of the hat and you would smile. And here you are in this, um, this literal cocoon of a vehicle, an F-150, yeah. and you've got that, that safety bubble. What were you feeling knowing you're in there, the world is going on past you, people that you know are seeing you? What was it like not only being there alone, but seeing people like me and people you know walk right past outside that bubble? Yeah, it's... It's, it's almost like what was going on around me wasn't what I was experiencing. I, it, I had difficulty grounding myself in reality in those times. So when, when I'd be in that black truck out back and you'd pop by and wave your hat, uh, I would acknowledge you and say hello because that's the veneer I wanted to keep up. What I wouldn't have done is stop and say, hey, Denis, you got a minute. Um, I wanted to talk to you about something. I never did that, and that, that went on for quite a long time. And really, that truck did become my womb. It was my place that I could be where uh, nobody could reach me, nobody could talk to me. Um, and I had this force field around me that until I elected to open the door to the force field, I, I would be fine. Meanwhile, I was physically ill in that truck. Right? If an email came over my phone, I would physically be ill. Uh, constant headaches. Uh, I suffered from headaches all day, all night. Uh, I was at one point taking, you know, uh, 
15 to 20 Tylenol capsules a day just to keep up with the headaches. Um, and that was while I was drinking until I ran into a medical doctor who said, please stop doing that. You're probably going to kill, kill yourself. So there was all kinds of things going on where I was looking for substances just to try to take the edge off and, and, and numb me a bit. So I wasn't thinking about these things all the time. Are you okay? Do you want to take a break now? Or are you? No, no, I'm fine. I'm okay. fine. It's good to talk about it. Yeah. And uh, I just I'm, well, you, well, you mentioned it's good to talk about it. Do you look back and, and regret not having rolled down the window and, and asked me or anybody, hey, you know what? I'm not doing that great. Can we talk for a minute? Uh, I regret it in the sense that um, I was, whether it was uh, excessive pride or, uh, you know, feelings that I was better than I really was, I regret feeling those ways because that's not how I am or how I wanted to be. But, but frankly, until, until I decided to stop drinking, I, I just wasn't ready to talk to someone and hear their advice on it. I wouldn't have listened. Uh, I had been talking to people, including close family members, and I wasn't listening, right? I, I wasn't in, in the mindset of hearing what people were telling me or listening to what they're observing about my behavior. This is such a small community, Jason. I've said many times that you never, you never curse the truck or the car in front of you because you're probably driving to the same church supper. Everybody knows it's 20,000 people, but it feels like there are 200 on most days in Lindsay. And uh, it could be argued safely, I believe, that your experience in a major center, had it been in Toronto, for instance, where you, know, you started out on Bay Street, it probably would have been different than it turned out to be in this community where your profile is much higher Everybody knows who you are. How did that affect everything from, you know, holding all of this in inside to ultimately opening up about it? The fact that it is such a, a tight, in, in all the best and worst ways, a tight community where everybody knows a little bit about everybody. Well, strangely enough, I was always comforted by that, by knowing that uh, I knew a lot of people in the community. I knew I would have support if I needed it. Uh, I knew I could disclose things like mental health without being um, perceived adversely by many in the community. So in an odd way, although I never utilized that support right away, I never reached in and grabbed it and took advantage of it, I felt it. And I, I'm not sure I would have felt that had I been somewhere else. You knew it was in your back pocket, you could go I to it. I knew it was there and I knew when and if I needed it, it would be there for me. You know, the way mental health challenges and your, your, your dealings with addictions, how they manifested themselves, you weren't being driven home by the police who'd picked you up, passed out in a park along the Scugog River. You, you, know, you, you weren't disheveled. You were keeping it together. I wonder if that almost allowed you to not really see what was going on, that you were just a functioning member uh, a higher functioning member of society. If that, if that made it harder to come to grips with, I think I got to deal with some stuff here. Oh, Denis, there's, there's no question about it. I mean, here's an example of, of my day uh, during my raging alcoholism is, is I got to the point where I'd wake up at four in the morning. I would go into my gym and I would work out for three solid hours. Uh, no breaks. I would work out for three hours and that was for the purpose of working off the hang off, hang hangover and alleviating the guilt I was feeling for drinking so much the night before. So I would work out that three hours which would make me shiny again, 
which I would feel, okay, I'm back to normal again. Then I'd get up and do my routine with the kids, with work, with you know trial lawyering and doing all that. And as soon as 3.30 or 4 o'clock came, uh, came around, uh, I drank, but I drank very, I drank like I worked extremely intensely, hmm. extremely intensely. I had one purpose when I drank, and that was to get to the feeling of 10 drinks. And, and I needed that feeling as soon as possible. And then I'd go to bed at 9.30, wouldn't remember the night before, and I'd start all over again at 4 in the morning. It became part of your workday almost. That became my, my life. And it was, even today, uh, now that I'm sober, I have trouble getting back to exercising uh, in a daily way because it's a bit triggering for me because now I associate exercising with that negative time in my life where it, it became tied to and associated with my addictions. So, you know, I think I'm struggling today in, in simple things like going up, you know, to Planet Fitness for an hour or whatever because um, these things these things have some emotional uh, conflict for me. Um, I want to be careful here how I frame this next question because I don't, I don't want to be perceived as, as judging or maligning other people's experiences. But you've been very clear that there's pretty much zero history of addiction in your upbringing or your family. Why was that important to you to explain that, to just throw that out there and go, just so everybody knows, you know, I'm not, I'm not pointing to any, anything in my past per se. No, I think you even used the word trauma. So why was it important to let people know that? Well, I, I, since, since this has happened and I've had a clear mind to think about my life and what's happened, I've, I've readjusted how I think about the word addiction. I no longer use that phrase very often. It's, it's, for me, it was addiction was really just repetitive, uh, often ritualistic, and usually pathological self-comforting. And that self-comforting needed to come from some source. Usually, it's an adverse childhood experience. Some say childhood trauma. Uh, I, I think that's too extreme. I think it, you can just have adverse experiences that lead you to need to self-comfort. Um, and I, I don't, when I reflect on that, and I've done lots of therapy, I worked with a psychiatrist for a year, you know, three times a week, uh, we didn't identify uh, any particular adverse childhood experiences, you know, beyond what, what you might consider normal, certainly no trauma. So I couldn't point to that. I couldn't say, okay, this is now starting to make sense to me that, you know, I developed this need or I had this addiction or I had this need to self-comfort because I was still feeling emotional feelings about this that happened to me in my youth. I really didn't identify too much of that. Um, so I struggled with that. Why, why are you, why do you have this ritualistic pathological need to self-comfort? Where does that come from? What, why, you know, is it just your wiring? Is it inherent in the way your brain works? Or, you know, is there something you can't remember? Or is there something that you're not realizing? I, I've struggled with that for some time since, since getting sober. Well, let's talk a bit about that wiring. And I'm going to just share a, a, a very personal experience. Not that personal, but a personal experience. And, and there is a reason why I'm going to do that, because it will set up the question I want to pose to you. Um, there's a show on the CBC, on CBC radio called The Debaters. And like most comedians, we've all wanted to do it. And I wanted desperately to do this show. And I'd done it once. And it took me years to get back on. And I begged and I pleaded. And I finally got to do the show. And then I realized after having done the show, uh, I didn't enjoy the experience. Because it had to do with 
debating, arguing, even in a playful, comical way. I felt that was put on display for everybody else to see, right. to watch me argue in front of somebody else for their amusement. And, uh, and I, at that point, I decided, I don't want to do the show again. And it was an easy choice. It's not like the producers were begging me to do it again anyway. But I was able to walk away from it. Now, this is setting up the question I wanted to ask you, because given what you do as a lawyer, especially in litigation, you're, and when you're in a courtroom, much of your work is predicated on that, on conflict and arguing and challenging, how much do you think that fueled or how short was that line between that, that kind of work that you can't really walk away from if you're a lawyer and, and, where, and where it led you? Excellent question. Um, it was a long one, but thank you. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you've, you, you got to that point where, it, you know, you've, mat, you've maybe mastered your own craft to a certain extent and that, that wasn't... Uh, a positive step forward for you in that experience. For me, um, imagine imagine this, and I know of no other profession or job that's like this. Maybe maybe you do, and you can tell me. But imagine getting up in the morning and being consumed with having to address issues or problems, and having to argue and fight with other really smart people all day on those problems until you go to bed. Until you go to bed. I can't imagine it. It's, it's, lawyers don't appreciate this. They don't, and again, I don't know of any other profession that's characterized like that, but that's what it is. Uh, and it's, you know, maybe more so some lawyers than other. Litigators maybe more so than uh, intellectual property lawyers, but all lawyers experience this. There's conflict in all lawyers' dealings with each other. And it got for me to the point that, you know, everybody I dealt with in my life was was uh, was unfriendly. That was my first reaction. Was this is someone I need to do better than? I need to outsmart. I need to outmaneuver. I need to beat. And that's kind of the job, isn't it? It is. But imagine doing that every day, all day, for twenty years. It it adds up. It impacts your blueprint. It it, it affects your personality. It affects your demeanor. And I think it did mine. Because I don't think naturally I'm a conflict-driven person. I think I acquired that skill or that, that characteristic as a result of my profession. Hmm. Uh, I don't remember being that way in high school. I don't remember being that way in undergraduate studies, uh, driven by conflict and the need to win and you know such a highly... I've been a competitive guy most of my life, but it, it just took off to a whole other level with the law. It's got to be exhausting. It was totally exhausting. Yeah, it was very, very exhausting. And, uh, you know, so exhausting that uh, I needed that escape. That, that's what the escape, you know, that hatch that I'd lift every day at 3.30, whether it was liquid or pills, uh, that's what I needed just to shut it off. I needed just to shut that off for a while because I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it anymore. Nor did I want to. I started to resent it immensely. Right. I started to resent all these things that I was doing. And, and, you know, what I, I mentioned, I mentioned to someone else that a good example is one of my rules when I practice was, you know, until that inbox is empty, I'm not going home. And you know how busy lawyers are and how many emails they get. And I really started to resent that about myself. And I've been doing that for years and years and years. And then you get caught in that wheel and you can't and not, I, and you I can't not do it. it. You can't I not do it. I couldn't bring myself to turn. I mean, I, 
I admire my wife, Carissa, because often she's able to bring, come home, turn her phone off for three hours and not look at it. And then when she does, she's not stressed out when there's four or five emails there she, she didn't know about. I, that's not me. I, I'm not wired that way and I couldn't function that way. So I was on 24-7 and had to be. Or, or I'd get more stressed out about what don't I know what's going on. So I rationalized it as you'll be less stressed out if you just know it along the way so you can at least be aware of it and manage it. So what do you tell that person then, Jason, to the layperson uh, that they believe there is you know, a certain amount of glamour and financial comfort with being a lawyer, especially a high-profile lawyer and, and, and a successful one in, in regardless of the size of the community? Because it's easy for them, for those people, uh, to unfairly dismiss any plight. What would you tell those people that, you know, forget what you're seeing around here. You know, this is something that can affect anybody. Well, I mean, I've learned to say to my kids, never judge because you don't know what's going on in that person's life. And that that's a um, axiom that really has brought on new importance for me in my life since I got sober. And it's, it's never what it seems. Um, the people you meet until you get to know them aren't, are never what you think they are. And, you know, mental health affects every single person in this community. And it is, you know, I, I hate to use the word rampant, but I think it is insidiously pervasive across our community. It's, it affects every family. Uh, and I, I, you know, I'd be shocked to hear about a family that isn't affected by mental health in some way. Uh, or wellness. And it's only just now that we're realizing that we, we don't take care of ourselves upstairs like we have done downstairs. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like you go to the doctor or the emergency for any physical injury. Uh, it's only now that we're starting to realize, hey, we need to take care of ourselves upstairs too. And I wasn't, I sacrificed that. I, I laid that to bear and to waste in order to achieve professional success and public notoriety, which was both tied together. Right, the, the more well-known I became, the more well-known my firm became and the busier my firm became and the more lawyers I needed to hire. Um, and that's, that's how my life was you know, really taken over for all those years. That, that's how I was functioning. I have two more quick questions. Well, I'm not gonna be quick, but I have two more questions and then I promise I'll leave. Okay. <laughs> um, can you talk about your decision to ultimately bow out of the mayoral race because I'm guessing not coincidentally it came right around the same time that you decided to seek help. What was that decision like to go, I'm bowing out? Well, I, when I left my law firm, I was devastated. Uh, I couldn't, uh, and I, uh, Denis, I literally spent a year with a Toronto based psychiatrist, 45 minute sessions, three times a week trying to come up with a plan and a strategy for me to stay at the law firm and continue to be a lawyer. And, and that was a year. That, that's the level of investment I made in, in not leaving what I was doing. Because I, you know, in my own mind, I was thinking, this is absurd. You're 50, you've got all this great you know, stuff going on in your life and you've got financial success and you've got professional success. Why would you possibly walk away from that? It's, it's illogical, it's irrational. But I also realized I didn't have a choice. I didn't have a choice. Uh, I couldn't do it no matter how much treatment or drugs I was taking. Uh, I couldn't stay. And 
at that time I thought to myself, well, maybe if I apply some of my skill sets in a different environment, things would be easier. I wouldn't feel this level of stress. I wouldn't feel this level of, of drowning that I'm feeling now. And it wasn't until I went to rehab to a, a great facility in Montreal that helped me understand, Jason, you're just going to transfer the same issues you're experiencing into, in, if you were successful, into the mayor's office. And you're going to need to be the best at that. And you're going to, you know, you'll always be, you know, you'll, you'll do one step, let's do more, let's do more, let's do more. It's got to be, it's got to be, you know, 100% all the time. And you're going to feel the same way or you're going to get worse. And I realized, yeah, that's true. That's true because, uh, you know, to a certain extent, there's some innate part of me that that's like that as well. And I realized that wouldn't be fair because I've always said that, you know, with the people I elect, unless, unless you can do, unless you can commit to this job in the way you're advertising, you're going to commit to it. Don't do it because that's not fair to all the people that are voting for you. Okay. Here's my last question. You've talked about your brand, about who you were, who Jason Ward, the lawyer was the overachieving person who responded to every email almost immediately, never left work with an inbox with emails in it. That was your brand. Right. Now looking back, what would you like the Jason Ward brand to be? What do you want me to see? What brand do you want me to see now in Jason Ward? What are you striving for? Um, that's an excellent question. Uh, and I've not been asked that, but I, I, I suppose if I had to brand myself going forward, it would be here's a person who's had a great life experience, who's, who's acquired a really good skill set for certain things, and who's applying that to help others. And I, I know that sounds trite for me to say, you know, I want to give back. I want to help others. But honestly, in, in my heart of hearts, that's what I want to do. Uh, I'm in a very enviable position that uh, I can choose not to work uh, if, if that's what I want to do. And that means I've got lots of time to think about how can I take all these things that I've learned and these wonderful attributes that I've acquired or developed and use them for good things. And that's what I'm doing now. I'm, I'm searching for those opportunities, but at the same time, recognizing that I have to manage the commitments I make because I'm, I'm, not, I'm not all better. I, I'm not the old Jason. I'm not the new Jason modified with treatment that makes him all better. Uh, I, still, I still suffer from mental health issues. I'm still prone to addiction. I'm still an addict. Uh, and I have to recognize that, and that has to govern my life currently. You'll get there. You'll get there to that brand, Jason. <laughs> Thanks for this, man. Um, how was it? And this isn't a placeholder. That's a genuine question. How was this? Was this okay? Yeah, great questions. Yeah, a lot of those I haven't been asked before, so it's fantastic. Well, thanks for being so candid with us. You're always good at that. Thanks, man. If you or someone you know is dealing with the kinds of challenges that Jason Ward was so open and candid about, there is help out there. You can contact our local branch of the Canadian Mental Health Association. Its toll-free four-county crisis line is 1-866-995-9933. This has been a special edition of the Advocate Podcast Stories from Kawartha Lakes part of The Advocate magazine and The Advocate online. You can find all our past episodes on your favorite streaming platform. 
Our show is brought to you by the law firm that Jason Ward co-owns with his wife, lawyer Carissa Ward. They're at wardlegal.ca. Stay safe, be kind, and take care of yourself and those around you. My name is Denny Grignel. Talk to you in a couple of weeks. Thank you.